So if you're watching right now and you were born in the 1980s, do me a favor. In the comments section of wherever you're watching, answer this question. Which of the following cartoons did you prefer as a kid? Animaniacs, DuckTales, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Now, if you're watching and you were born in the 90s, in the comments, let me know if you were ever lucky enough to own a Furby or a Tamagotchi. If the answer is yes to either of those, you had it good. Wasn't the same in the Popovitz house. So here's why I ask. If you were born after 1980 and are not only a baptized follower of Jesus, but you regularly attend church, then you are in the minority of your generation. 40% of millennials and Gen Z, those born between 1980 and 2012, they self-identify as religiously unaffiliated. And 45% report that they rarely or never attend religious services of any kind. And there are two big reasons for that. At first, it began with their Gen X and Boomer parents, who were the first American generations to decrease their involvement in religious practice. And many millennials and members of Gen Z simply didn't grow up in homes that practiced faith consistently. Which is a reminder, if you want your kids to go to church when they're adults, take them to church when they're kids. But second, and this one is a big one, most people under the age of 40 simply don't perceive the relevance of church. There is to them a, a disconnect between issues that they say matter most and what the church is saying and doing. And that's why we're starting this series, because that notion, that perception that the church is disconnected from the life that they're living, has nothing to say to it, that perception is false. So we asked 106 people between the ages of 12 and 40 what they believe to be the top five most important issues in our culture today. And in this series, we will take the time to speak to each one of those issues. And the goal is to offer some honest and scripturally informed responses. And in doing so, to illustrate that, that your worries and you, you, you matter to the church. But even more importantly, to demonstrate that the Christian faith speaks hope to every single struggle of our day. And that the message of Jesus is in fact the most relevant and powerful force in the world, no matter your age. So here's what we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about marriage and family, science and faith, human rights, political polarization, and today, anxiety, depression, and mental health. Mental health was by far the most popular response among those we polled. And it makes sense. If you were born after 1980, then you've grown up in a world where according to recent health data, 44 million Americans report dealing with some type of mental health condition. 44 million. It's a world where right now the second leading cause of death among your peers, people aged 10 to 35, is suicide. It's a world where the trauma of things like 9-11, the, the 2008 recession, uh, mass shootings, and now COVID-19, that trauma was not only felt personally, but, but you saw it affecting people collectively. You, you watched it traumatize others thanks to the internet and social media. So, so it's no wonder that we list this as number one. And honestly, the, the church, 
does not have a good reputation on this issue. Christians have been accused of, of what I'll call reductionism when it comes to dealing with mental health. Meaning we have often reduced depression, anxiety, even bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, we've reduced it to a matter of faith. We've told people just to, to pray more or to believe more, to read their Bible more, to ask for forgiveness or just clean up their lives. When in reality, mental health is comprised of physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And, and most disciplines that are asked to deal with this, most disciplines are tempted to do the same thing, tempted towards some type of reductionism. So for example, medicine will zero in on the physiological components. Uh, a counselor will focus on the emotional aspects. And the church will have a hyper-focus on how it all connects to someone's relationship with God, making it a spiritual issue. But please hear me say that, that I understand that our mental health is, at all times, a mix of all three. It, it's connected to my cells and my thoughts and my faith. And, and it might surprise you to find that that's what the Christian faith actually teaches. It teaches that when, when sin entered the world, it resulted in all of creation, every molecule of creation, being disconnected from the divine. And that gap between creation and its creator leaves the whole thing hurting, struggling from birth. The New Testament in the book of Romans says that all of creation is in bondage to corruption and is groaning and longing for healing. So, so here's how it affects you and me. We are born with, with bodies that break down, with thinking that gets turned around and a relationship with God that can't be found. Now, 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 if that's what Christianity actually teaches, that there's this level of corruption, physically, emotionally, spiritually, then the church should be the safest place, the safest place for people to come and admit that they're struggling with that. And we, church, must be the kind of place where someone can walk in whose, whose mental health is a mess and they're not stigmatized as somehow extra sinful or super strange or patronized and told just to pray. But their struggle is legitimized. They're told, look, we're all hurting and you can hurt too. And, and they're pointed toward resurrection hope and holistic help. And for those of you who've, who've not felt like, like this church or any other church has been safe, if you've ever been rejected or shamed because of some physical, mental, or any other kind of struggle, if you've been, been put in a corner and just told to pray rather than listened to and loved and prayed for and encouraged to get all the help that you need, then let me just say, I'm sorry. And we, the church, we need your forgiveness. Now that said, I, I want to share with you today the story of Elijah and how God dealt with him in a moment of mental anguish. Elijah was a prophet, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament. You'll find his story in the book of 1 Kings. And in chapter 19, Elijah is coming off of an incredible victory. He's just defeated a, a group of people called the prophets of Baal in this epic showdown. It was, it was kind of like a spiritual cage match between Elijah's God and their fake God. And Elijah won. 
and it resulted in the death of all the false prophets. Now, this loss made the powers that be who propped up these false prophets mad, and so following the victory, Elijah is on the run for his life. But, but he doesn't just run for safety. He falls into this deep depression. Listen to this. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So Elijah has just had this incredible victory. And yes, I imagine it's terrifying to have your life threatened. But he's also just seen the God of the universe show up personally and powerfully to fight on his behalf. Elijah should rationally know that he's going to be okay. But rather than just run for safety, he swings emotionally from this incredible high to this deep low. He wants to die. And then God shows up. And look at what God does. Better yet, listen for what God doesn't do. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. The, the angel of the Lord is believed by most scholars to actually be Jesus making a, a pre-Christmas appearance, an appearance prior to his birth. So Jesus, in fact, shows up. And, and does he berate Elijah for not having enough faith? Does he tell Elijah to get over it? Does he ask Elijah to pray harder? No. There's no condemnation. There, there's no judgment just compassion and food. Jesus bakes him bread. He strengthens Elijah for his next step, and he encourages him to take it, to head toward Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, God's favorite hangout. And once there, God again appears, but not in, uh, not in a display of power, but with a whisper of his own voice. So, so here's what you need to take away. Elijah's mind is wearing dangerously thin, and what happens? The God of the universe doesn't reject him, but draws close to him and meets his most basic need. He's hungry. And then he equips him to keep moving forward in faith, leaning upon and listening to the voice of God. Now, I think, I think that this is instructive for how the church should respond to those around us whose mental health is hurting. If someone you know or love is struggling, draw close to them. Sit with them. Be with them. Someone once said to me, mental illness is lonely enough, but it's even worse if you have to actually go through it alone. And then serve them. Serve the whole person. Notice what they need, down to the basics. Perhaps they do need to pray. Prayer is always good. But what else? Maybe they also need a good meal, better sleep, regular exercise. Can they take a walk with you? Such things do work miracles. And then wrestle with what you can do to encourage them, like the angel to Elijah, to take a faithful step. 
remind them that God has not only promised to work through pastors to nurture their relationship with God, but that God has also appointed doctors to deal with the brain and the body and, and therapists to help us untangle our hearts and minds. And by the way, keep in mind that none of this happens quickly. Walking with someone who's struggling takes time. There's, there's no way around it. The first word that Paul uses to describe love in the New Testament is patience. And please hear me on this. Wounded humans do not respond well to hurried help. And, and then lastly, this. This is where the Christian faith truly differentiates itself. Point them to the voice of God. And by the voice of God, what I mean is Jesus. Because what we believe is that all of God's words ultimately point to and proclaim the hope that we have in him. And I want you to hold on to that word, hope. Because that, my friends, is the one thing that the church can offer that nothing else can. Hope. And every hurting mind and broken heart needs hope. A big hope. A grand and sure and certain hope. The kind of hope that says God sees your pain and he is for you in your pain. Hope that there will one day be an end to a resurrection from this particular pain. And that kind of hope, that's what Jesus is. Do you know the difference between a wish and a hope? A wish is something you would like to be true despite all evidence to the contrary. And what many things offer to those who are hurting is simply that, a well-intended wish, a wish that things might get better, a wish that you'd be healed, but no guarantees. But hope is different. Hope is something that you long for, that you have tangible reason to believe will happen. You see, the story of Elijah is not just a picture of, of God's compassion toward one man in history and a lesson of how we can love others, although it is that. But it is ultimately a picture, a glimpse of how God and Jesus Christ would eventually love all of us in our mental frailty and, and the hope that he gives to each one of us. If you are at the edge today, if you're worn down with a weary mind today, here's why you can have hope today. Jesus Christ has drawn close to you. He entered your world, he drew close to you, and he knows your pain. He even knows the pain of total mental anguish. Have you read the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11:35. it just says, Jesus wept. He was overcome with sadness, and we're never really told why. You see, even Jesus had a day where the pain of this world washed over him and he could not be consoled. Have you ever felt like that? Likewise, Jesus has met your deepest, most pressing personal need, which is to have a right relationship with the Father and to be given a guarantee that you will not be abandoned to this broken body. He has baked you that bread. That's what Easter is. His rise from the dead proves that his payment for sin was total. And it is a preview of what awaits you. You will rise out of the pains of this dying world. It means that you are more than whatever happens up here. You are first and foremost accepted by God. And he's promised to save you and raise you and release you from this. All of which would just be a crazy wish if it weren't anchored in the fact, the historical fact of Easter. That's why we call it a living hope. Jesus is alive. Do you have a living hope? Now, now side note, for those of you who want to help those who are hurting, take this advice. Don't, don't try to fix people. 
That, that's not your job. Besides, the Bible doesn't talk much about fixing other people's problems because honestly, people will always have problems. Instead, our faith is about pointing people toward and anchoring them in the hope that Jesus gives to all people no matter their problem. Do that. I was born in 1980, and honestly, I don't know if I'm a millennial or a member of Gen X, but here's what I do know. I grew up surrounded by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Sega Genesis, slap bracelets, remember those? And a whole lot of what we've been talking about. Some of the people that I love the most are Elijah's. In incredible people of faith, but caught in at times some serious mental health struggle. And to those who, who, who think that this faith doesn't relate to or speak to this part of life, I get it. But at the very least, let me say to you that from my own experience, it really does. I, I remember going with, with one person to get their new medication and her hoping out loud that, that this would finally help. I had vivid memories of visiting another family member on the seventh floor of a psychiatric facility in Flint, Michigan, and wondering how long she'd have to stay there, but thinking, I'm so glad that she's getting help there. And I remember praying relentlessly for a sibling that wanted to harm himself and had to be protected from himself. And what I know now is that God was at work in all of those moments, and, and the Christian faith was the best possible way to deal with it. Because what my faith told me was that God, God was working through doctors to deal with the body and balance the brain. And he was speaking, God was speaking through therapists to untangle knots in thinking and to give strategies for coping. And he was with all of us in the word of Jesus, who told us that everybody's unwell, but that in him, there is a living hope for all to be made whole. If you're skeptical of our faith on this subject, I just pray that you continue to wrestle with this. If you're struggling, and, and a lot of us coming out of COVID, a lot of us are gonna be struggling with our mental health, I pray that you'd believe this. But if, you're not, but if you are okay, I pray that you would open your eyes to see those who are not, and that you would you would lay hold of this, this need for people to listen and to draw close and to meet other people's needs and to anchor them in the hope of Jesus and to be patient. I pray that you would join God in offering this. Amen.